This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Thursday. We're doing board review questions with you. Daphna, how's it? Uh, how's the stress level? It's high. I can tell it's high. <laughs> I'm, I work with her and, and, and she's, uh, yeah. It's high. Uh, That's all I have to say about that. Um, okay, let's just get right into it. Then we're doing question 43. Daphna, the most common cause of prenatal hydronephrosis is A, mega ureter, B, no specific anomaly, C, ureteropelvic junction obstruction, D, vesicourethral vesico-urethral reflux. Sorry about that. Yeah, so uh, I picked UPJ obstruction. Ah, I made the same mistake. Which is not the right answer here. <laughs> In yeah. this question. So, yeah, that's, 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 it's, it's sadly uh, not the right answer. Um, the answer is no specific anomaly. The thing that tricked me was that it's prenatal hydronephrosis. Mm-hmm. So, hydronephrosis is the most commonly diagnosed prenatal findings. The incidence ranges, ranges from one to 5%. Approximately half are not associated with a specific cause and resolve before birth. So, that's why this is the answer. However, mm-hmm. postnatal hydronephrosis, number one cause, uh, UPJ obstruction. So, yeah, uh, was... <laughs> and it's one of these things where for me, I was doing the questions pretty quickly and I was like, hydronephrosis, most common cause, boom, UPJ, obstru- UPJ obstruction. And, and then I was like, ah, oh, shoot, prenatal. So I made the same uh, mistake. And um, yeah, go ahead. No, and and I mean, if, if you think about how many babies that we do renal ultrasounds for postnatally for hydronephrosis, and the, and they're normal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but because they were diagnosed prenatally, and obviously other causes include any type of bladder outlet obstruction, posterior urethral valve, prune belly syndrome, polycystic kidneys, multicystic dysplastic kidneys, renal agenesis, congenital mega ureters. All these are uh, potential causes. Um, and uh, what else can I tell you? Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's really it. So uh, the number one, if you do have prenatal hydronephrosis, I think another cool question they could ask is what is the the most the initial step of management of a baby diagnosed with prenatal hydronephrosis? Repeat their ultrasound. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, nothing really specific. And then you can go into all these different uh, 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 diagnostic and therapeutics, including VCUGs and prophylaxis, antimicrobial prophylaxis, and so on and so forth. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I think it. the other clinical pearl is about the timing of evaluating hydronephrosis. Okay, and um, you know, the newborns in the in the in the routine nursery may only stay for twenty four to seventy two hours, and we really shouldn't be getting the ultrasound so early. Um, because of all the fluid shifts in the first week of life. Um, so really, the recommendation is about a week of life or even longer for low-risk babies. Okay. <clears throat> so no ultrasound for a week. Mm-hmm. So don't do it right after birth. Mm-hmm. Oh. 
Okay. Um, and actually, um, in the third edition of Neonatology Review, they go into a pretty nice algorithm about when to get it based on the risk, other risk factors for the babies, which is cool. Okay. Okay, question 44. The most common cause of acute renal failure in the neonate is A, cardiac surgery, B, dehydration, C, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, or D, sepsis. Okay, so... Um, I have, I was, I was pretty convinced that all of these pathologies can cause acute renal failure. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, all right, which one I was, mm -hmm. I was thinking that since sepsis is probably more likely than the others, I was thinking maybe sepsis then should be the answer just from a statistical standpoint. So I picked sepsis. Yeah. And actually that's what I picked also. And that is not the right answer. <laughs> the most common cause of acute renal failure um, is hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Um, it, they, it can present with both oliguric and non-oliguric renal failure, um, especially in babies with severe asphyxia. But you're right. All of those, um, all of these pathologies can cause acute renal failure. And I think another question type that comes up a lot um, is uh, the different types of renal failure. So we have pre-renal, which is the most commonly seen cause, which really relates to hypoperfusion of the kidneys, um, which really all of these answer choices could present with pre-renal um, pre-renal renal failure. Um, intrinsic means it's due to direct injury or congenital anomaly. Um, and so after enough time, like a, a hypoxic or an ischemic hit uh, to the kidney, you could also see um, intrinsic. And then post-renal is really obstruction to urinary flow in both kidneys. Um, this could be very common. Uh, the Probably the most common is posterior urethral valves. Uh, your turn. Okay. Um, Daphna, question 51. While managing the fluids and electrolyte of a 600-gram infant born at 26 weeks of gestation, the neonatology fellow notes that the infant's six-hour sodium concentration is 150 milliequivalents per liter. Possible contributing factors to this infant's hypernatremia include all of the following except choice A, higher insensible water loss than expected. Choice B, a lower glomerular filtration rate for the preterm neonate than the full-term neonate. Choice C, hyperosmotic urine osmolality. Choice D, A and B. Choice E, none of the above. Okay, you're looking for the wrong answer. So definitely the preterm baby, especially this tiny little baby, um, would have a high insensible <laughs> water loss. <laughs> Cute little thing. Um, this, is a, this is a baby who is like 90%, right, um, of extracellular fluid water. Um, so definitely have a high insensible water loss. Um, there is a lower glomerular filtration rate for the preterm neonate than the full term neonate. Though there are some places that are, that keep saying in the, in the, in the review books that the GFR is not that impacted by prematurity. Um, so we'll talk about that because I, I have, I was like so fed up with this discussion. <laughs> I just like went deep into it and deep I into think... it. You'll tell us. Okay, great. Um, hyper osmotic urine osmolality. Um, no, I think that would give you the opposite. Uh, so C, C. Okay. So, um, yeah, C is the correct answer. So although 
preterm infants can dilute their urine similar to term infant, they cannot concentrate their urine to the same degree. Mm-hmm. Adults can reach a urine osmolality of 1,500 milliosmoles per liter. Term infants can concentrate their urine to 600 milliosmoles per liter. And preterm infants can reach a urine osmolality of 500 milliosmoles per liter. Thus, the preterm infant has a limited ability to conserve free water and often has a hypoosmotic urine osmolality. Uh, although extremely preterm neonates can maintain water and sodium balances within a relatively narrow range over a broad range of water and sodium intakes, the ability of the preterm kidney to compensate for changes in water and electrolyte intake is limited. So then there's this idea of glomerular filtration rate is lower in the preterm neonate than the term neonate and increases with advanced gestational age and postnatal age. So let's talk about that for a second. So because in the book, in the, in the review book, it will say that the GFR is not really affected by prematurity. But the bottom line is a preterm baby will have a lower GFR than a full-term baby. And the reason is because the GFR is directly proportional to the number of nephrons mm-hmm. that you have. And because as gestational age goes on, you have more and more nephrons, so your GFR increases with gestational age. But it's the way each um, nephron works is is normal i mean does that make sense um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. meaning they just have less of them so on the aggregate the gfr is lower because they have less nephrons but uh as their number but the prematurity itself doesn't really play a role in that so i think that's what it that's why it can be very confusing um right. in addition the sodium reabsorptive capacity of the proximal nephron is limited in the preterm neonate hindering the preterm's infant ability to conserve sodium we know that they're notorious for dumping sodium in their urine with a normal extracellular volume. Um, Extremely preterm infants can also have much higher insensible water losses than expected, further contributing to the risk of hypernatremia, which is why they need such high humidity um, in their incubator. But uh, yeah, I think that whole GFR thing threw me off and and Mm -hmm. I wanted to find that because it's like, is it affected by, it's affected by prematurity because if you're born preterm, you have less nephron, thus your, Mm -hmm. your GFR as a whole is, is lower. But individually, the nephrons are working just as they're supposed to. That's very helpful. Thank you. You're welcome. Let's go to question 52. An infant born at 24 weeks gestation is receiving 70% humidity in an isolate. The neonatology fellows involved in teaching a group of pediatric residents about extreme prematurity at this baby's bedside. One of the residents asks the fellow to explain the factors that contribute to insensible water loss. Of the following, the factor least likely associated with increased insensible water loss in an extremely preterm infant is A, antenatal steroid exposure, B, earlier postnatal age, C, increased upper airway epithelial fluid loss, D, placement on a radiant warmer compared with an isolate, or E, a younger gestational age. Um, okay, so... Insensible water losses is really typical of babies that are born extremely preterm. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that. So choice B, earlier postnatal age makes sense. Um, increased upper airway epithelial fluid losses, um, that is true too. Being placed on a radiant warmer is uh, actually a risk because, again, you are not providing enough humidity to prevent mm-hmm. those uh, insensible water losses. Again, younger gestational age, earlier postnatal age, all these things are sort of the same. However, antenatal steroid exposure, I think, has no effect on insensible water losses. So that's what I picked, choice A. Yeah, so interestingly, and and I did not know this, actually, that intrauterine exposure to maternal antenatal steroids um, decreases 
IWL, insensible Mm. water loss, at any given gestational age. And this is felt to be likely uh, to greater skin maturation and better perfusion in uh, infants exposed to maternal steroids. Um, So it will um, decrease insensible water loss. Another pro for getting those steroids in. Um, and like you mentioned, um, it's really that babies have this trans epidermal fluid loss, um, especially, um, the younger baby, and it increases in the following scenarios, younger gestational age, earlier postnatal age, ambient water vapor pressure, and being in a radiant warmer. So studies have shown that insensible water loss is 15 to 35% higher during the first three weeks of age for infants placed in a a radiant warmer compared with a humidified environment. And then insensible water loss is obviously a major uh, risk factor in fluid electrolyte loss in the extremely preterm neonate. Okay. Okay. Do we have any more uh, time for today? Yeah. One more. Are you sure? One more? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, question 54, Daphna. A two-week-old term infant is brought to the emergency room with seizures and is quickly transferred to the neonatal intensive care unit. The grandmother reports that the mother has been feeding, has been, sorry, breastfeeding and supplementing the feedings with mm. apple tea, which mm. is mostly free water. Uh, in case you <laughs> didn't know how tea was made. The astute medical student is concerned that the infant has water intoxication and suggests specific lab testing, including a sodium concentration. The sodium concentration comes back 117 milliequivalents per liter. Although the risk is low, the neonatologist asks the medical student to present an overview of cerebral demyelination. Of the following, the most accurate statement about cerebral demyelination is... Choice A, in most cases of cerebral demyelination, the infant is symptomatic. Choice B, it is associated with a rapid correction of the plasma sodium concentration by more than 25 millimoles per liter in 24 to 48 hours. Choice C, it is not associated with hypoxemia. Choice D, it is not associated with liver disease. Choice E, the most sensitive test to diagnose cerebral demyelination is cranial ultrasonography. So which one okay. is the most accurate statement? Well, you know, I hate hyponatremia. <laughs> uh, I fear, I fear uh, cerebral demyelination. <laughs> so, um, but that part of why it's so scary is because you don't know if it's happening. So um, A is wrong. Um, the infants are usually asymptomatic. Um, B is is right. It's associated with a rapid correction of the plasma sodium concentration by more than 25 millimoles in 24 to 48 hours, um, or kind of like 0.5 to 1 millimole per hour. It's uh, not associated with hypoxemia or severe liver disease. I I actually didn't know if those were true or not. Same um, here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, cranial ultrasound's not good at detecting it. Um, actually, very few imaging uh, opportunities are, are good at detecting it, but MRI is probably best. So luckily, I knew that B was was the right answer. <laughs> yes. Um, it is, it's, it B is the correct answer. Um, cerebral demyelination is associated with a rapid correction of the plasma sodium concentration by more than 25 millimoles per liter in 24 to 48 hours. Um, 
which basically adds up to about like one milli equivalent mm-hmm. an hour, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what it is. So cerebral demyelination develops if there's an excessive change in uh, serum sodium concentration. Cerebral demyelination, also known as CDM, is a uh, leads to lesions and are that are a rare complication of hyponatremic encephalopathy. Uh, these lesions occur usually several days after the correction of hyponatremia. And affected infants can present with quadriplegia, confusion, pseudobulbar palsy, and pseudocoma with a locked-in stare. However, uh, many affected patients are asymptomatic. Their lesions are best diagnosed by magnetic resonance imaging at least two weeks after the hyponatremia correction. And if you've, I mean, Daphna and I know this because we've had like such a discussion in our unit about Mm -hmm. uh, what is the proper way of correcting sodium. The data out there is scarce. And as this question mentions, like there's not much symptoms. So you're relying on data. So to understand how the, what are the effects of sodium correction, most of these studies that are out there are trying to look at two-year outcomes and obviously correlating that with the change in sodium is extremely difficult. A lot of them are retrospective studies. So, so yeah, they're mostly asymptomatic and that's what's creating such a, such a difficulty in understanding what is the proper way of doing this. Um, recent data suggests that CDM lesions are associated with the magnitude of the absolute correction hypoenatremic patients who develop CDM lesions may also have a history of hypoxemic period and or severe liver disease. Again, as you said, I I was not uh, completely familiar Mm -hmm. with that as well. Yeah, because when I think about patients that we've had, um, these were not their clinical pictures, hypoxemia or severe liver disease. But it sounds like if you have these additional risk factors, you are, you're at a higher risk for, for suffering the demyelination. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's it, buddy. That's it for today. All right, Daphne, yeah. I will see you tomorrow. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphne and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.